I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor, down the line from Mumbai, we have Simon Mundy, our correspondent there. And also from the US, we're joined by US banking editor Ben McClanahan, who's been talking to David Klein, the chief executive of Common Bond, the online lender. This week, we'll be taking a look at HSBC as it reports full year results. And as its outgoing chief executive, Stuart Gulliver, speaks to Martin. Secondly, we'll be going over to Mumbai to look at a scandal there at the Punjab National Bank, where nearly $2 billion in fraudulent transactions has taken place. And finally, from the US, that conversation with David Klein at student loan specialist Common Bond. First, though, Martin, to HSBC. You've had a busy morning reporting the full year results for the bank, the last ones under Stuart Gulliver's leadership. And maybe he's not going out on the high that he might have wished for. It's a fairly mixed set of numbers. Yeah, I think that's fair. The shares fell in the aftermath of the announcement by about three and a half percent in London and in Hong Kong, which reflects the fact that HSBC missed analysts' consensus expectations in the fourth quarter, where they were hit by one-off provisions and also perhaps higher costs than some analysts had expected. Overall, the full-year results were pretty positive. They broke six consecutive years of declines in annual revenues, and revenues actually went up for the first time in Stuart Gulliver's time in charge. And they also increased pre-tax profits on an adjusted basis by some 11% to almost $21 billion. So on that basis, not a bad note to go out on. But as I say, the fourth quarter wasn't as strong. I think expectations had been very high. Stuart Gulliver was was asked about, um, you know, whether he was disappointed about the slightly sour note. And he said, no, you know, people are taking profits. And that's to be expected. The revenue turn is quite an interesting point, isn't it? Because it sets the scene very nicely for the new management team under the chairmanship of Mark Tucker to come in and take that baton. Mark Tucker is known as a growth man. We expect him to step up that growth drive, don't we? Yeah, if you look at Mark Tucker's record at AIA, the Asian insurance company that he has run for several years before becoming chairman of HSBC in October last year, the company's revenue growth was very strong, more than doubled profits. And you know he led it from the point of its IPO and very strong growth in its share price as well. And he'll be hoping to repeat that trick. And a lot of investors that I spoke to in the build-up to this week's results were very hopeful that Mark Tucker could bring his expertise of Asian financial markets and particularly 
areas where HSBC is perhaps a bit weak, like insurance, wealth management, maybe asset management, and his expertise in those areas to help them capitalise more on the growth of a region that already contributes $8 out of every $10 of profit that HSBC generates. As we said, Stuart Gulliver, this was his swan song set of results. And you talked to him a few days ago, just as he was preparing to announce these numbers. Yeah, I did. And I started off by asking Mr. Gulliver to reflect back on the challenges he faced in his seven years running the bank, in which time he's focused on repairing the damage from money laundering and tax dodging scandals stemming from a string of ill-judged acquisitions by previous management teams. He's also worked hard to tighten central controls over the bank to try and avoid a repeat of such scandals. Obviously, the last seven years has been a challenging time for HSBC. And I and the group management board, so the kind of 20 people that report directly to me, had to respond to a set of circumstances that we were presented with in early 2011. We'd gone through this massive expansion between 1998 and 2002, where the firm had gone from a headcount of about 120,000 to 330,000 with a whole bunch of acquisitions. And that diluted our culture. It also meant, in many ways, it weakened our control environment. So so this was a huge cultural change within the firm, because for, you know, 145 years it had run itself as a federation. But if you're going to grip these type of issues, and also if you're going to create this cohesive argument for investors, you have to try and run it as a single company. Then I asked him what had stopped him from achieving his target of getting return on equity to at least 10%. Running a bank with negative interest rates, or with interest rates at zero, is a bit like running Shell with the oil price at five bucks. So in a way, what's been a headwind for us for the last seven years will become a tailwind. Finally, I asked if he considered his time in charge a success. He pointed to the fact that the bank had achieved eight out of ten targets in the Pivot to Asia restructuring plan he presented in 2015 to say that the bank had defied the critics who had argued it should be broken up. With the 10 action points, because we mark to market every quarter, I think we've also dealt with the investor concern and actually the regulator concern that it's too big to manage. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye on Mr Gulliver's career, I'm sure, going forward. Let's move on to our second topic and over to Mumbai, where we're joined now by Simon Mundy, our correspondent there, who's been taking a look at a fascinating scandal that's emerged at Punjab National Bank. So, Simon, thanks for joining us. Tell us exactly what happened. How did this fraud come about and how did it get discovered? The details are still coming out. It all began last Wednesday when Punjab National Bank released a very short announcement to the stock exchange saying that they seem to have detected a fraud worth approximately $1.77 billion. The way that this seems to have happened is that... A few people and entities, um, Punjab National Bank has named them as a very celebrated jeweller called Nirav Modi and certain people and certain relatives of his and companies controlled by them. Punjab National Bank has named them as those responsible. We haven't been able to reach those people for comment yet. Supposedly what happened is that with the connivance of two employees at a single branch in Mumbai, these people, over a period possibly extending up to about seven years, were able to get Punjab National Bank to extend 
letters of undertaking, which effectively are letters of guarantee, which then enabled these people to get loans from branches of Indian banks overseas. And it seems that the way this was done without PMB's management becoming aware of it was actually surprisingly easy. PNB was using an outdated version of the finical banking software that's used by many banks. And this meant that it was not connected with the SWIFT messaging service, which is used by banks to send messages to each other. So when these employees in the Mumbai branch were allegedly sending the messages to the banks overseas, which were guaranteeing the loans taken out by the suspects, this completely bypassed PMB's core banking system. And so it seems the management and the internal auditors and all the people who were supposed to be aware of such things had no idea this was going on. And over an extended period, it ended up being one of the biggest frauds, allegedly, in Indian history. And it was discovered only when the employee who's allegedly at the heart of all this stepped down from his post... The new person in the job was approached by the borrowers who asked for yet another letter of undertaking. And the new person thought this was absolutely remarkable and refused to give the letter. And that was when the whole thing fell apart. And that was in January. Simon, given that the way in which this was structured seems pretty simple and unremarkable in a way, it surely highlights a risk not only at this bank, but at others that might operate systems that are not as up to date as might be ideal. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's fair to say that India's state-owned banks have been really in the spotlight over the past few years Not so much because of their exposure to fraud, but because of their incredible exposure to non-performing loans by various corporate groups, which completely overextend themselves. So in some cases, there have been allegations that this money was used for dodgy purposes. But the deeper point is that these are banks which have got into incredible trouble simply by not having proper risk management systems, not having proper oversight of their operations. And that's already last year forced the government to roll out an expanded recapitalization program. The expansion alone was worth $32 billion. So these are already banks in big trouble. Now, India's banking sector is divided into the state banks and the private sector banks. The state banks are growing much more slowly than the private banks at the moment, but they still account for roughly two-thirds of banking system assets. So they're still incredibly important. And I think it is true to say that even if we zoom in on the specific problems here, the state banks are more vulnerable. Punjab National Bank, until I believe last month, was using this outdated software which left it vulnerable to this specific kind of fraud. I'm told that other state banks also have been slow to update the software, unlike most of their private rivals. So people are concerned about the kind of systemic problems within the bank that this showed. And I think there's an awful lot of questions now being asked about whether other state-owned banks in India could be vulnerable to similar problems. Well, it's definitely highlighting a worrisome gap in the systems there, but I guess potentially an opportunity, an additional opportunity for private sector players to expand further. Yeah, I think the private sector banks have really been on quite a tear over the past couple of years. Traditionally, they've been less active in the corporate loan space, but now they've been really picking up some of the slack that's been left by the state-owned banks. 
So this is good for them to a large extent. You do have some people who have been raising concern about some of the growth in their retail lending, saying could this come back to bite them. But I think broadly speaking, if you look at some of the leading private sector banks in India, HDFC Bank, Kotak Mahindra Bank, for example, these are really seen as being a class apart, frankly, from most of the state banks. It's worth noting that some of the private banks also, ICICI Bank and Axis Bank, which themselves actually are formerly state-controlled banks, they've ended up partly due to their heritage as being big corporate lenders and sort of development lenders. They've got NPA problems of their own. So it's not totally binary, state banks bad, private banks good. Some of the private banks also have problems of their own. But broadly speaking, the private banks look a lot stronger. However, I do think this could potentially be an economic problem for the country. At the moment, investment is, is fairly weak. There's a lot of spare capacity in industry. So the demand for credit is relatively subdued. If and when it does pick up, I think we could see something of a squeeze because the private banks are not really big enough yet to supply all the needs that Indian business has. The corporate bond market is not developed enough. And that's when you would really need the state banks to be firing all cylinders. And at the moment, they're certainly in no state to do so. No, it sounds the micro and macro are both concerning there. But thanks very much for your insights, Tom. Well, let's now go over to the US, where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been speaking to David Klein, the chief executive and co-founder of Common Bond, one of the US's biggest online lenders and a specialist in student loans. David Klein of Common Bond, thanks very much for joining me. About 18 months ago, I think that was the last time I wrote about your company, and back then you were raising another slug of equity funding and, and the overall loan originations. You're a student loan specialist. We're about half a billion. Can you bring me up to speed? What's happened since? Sure. So since then, we're now over 1.5 billion in total volume student loan originations. We have you know, grown our revenues by over 3x in that time as well. The team's done a fantastic job of, of beating kind of financial metrics, particularly net income targets over over that time. We will be profitable, we think, on either side of 18 months from now. And we think one of the fastest fintechs to get to profitability, in fact. We launched nationally in 2013. In that time, we've done a, a number of things. So not only on the customer side, have we done over 1.5 billion in loans. On the credit side, at the end of 2017, we had only had two defaults in the portfolio. And this has been a bit of a calling card for us, the the high quality of credit on our platform in the capital markets. So on the capital side of the business, we've increased the number of securitizations we've done to now a total of five. We've gotten to the point of double A with Moody's, S&P, and DBRS in those transactions. We're on our way to triple A status, assuming performance continues to uphold, and we think it will. And we've also increased the number of whole owned sale buyers on our marketplace probably added about $2 billion in secured capital since then. So what's behind this very strong credit quality? Because we all keep reading about the student loan debt crisis and look at the aggregate sums that are just incredible. Yeah. And, and people are entering workforces on reasonably low wages, but still somehow managing to pay their bills. What, what's going on? I think there are two things going on. One is upfront underwriting. So we take a lot of data. We heavily leverage technology, apply technology to that data to determine who among applicants were in a position to underwrite. 
at that point, what we do is we have a pretty strong ongoing risk management process where, you know, our team is really good at building relationships with our customers. And that has a lot to do with the fact that we're saving our customers on average $24,000 over the life of the loan. It has to do with the fact that we've built technology from the ground up to simplify and speed up the process for our members. We've been able to develop a pretty strong relationship with our borrowers so that when we reach out in the event that somebody you know is, is behind in, in payments, they pick up our, our phone call, they answer our emails, and we're actually there to help them. So we'll, we have a program called Common Bridge, mm-hmm. where if one of our members you know, loses their job, for example, we will postpone payments for three months at a time, as many as 12 consecutive months, and we'll help them find their, their next job, at least connect them to folks to, to interview with. And so what all of that means is that we have a relationship with our borrower in a way that, you know, not many others do so that when it's time to, to manage our portfolio over time and make sure people are making payments when they can, that we're creating conditions for which that is perhaps more likely on our platform than, than others. And you're basically refinancing a, a federal loan to something cheaper. Federal government student loans are historically kind of in the six to seven plus percent range, we will shave on average about two to three percentage points off that for the consumer. And that's what ultimately saves them on average $24,000. That's our refinance business. We also have an in-school lending business where whether you're a graduate or an undergraduate, virtually at any college or university in the country, we offer financing for you to pay for school in a way that saves you money relative to our alternatives. Mm -hmm. And then the third business line we're in, all within education finance, mind you, is something that we call our employer platform. This is a suite of student loan benefits that we offer employers who in turn offer these benefits to their employees as a way to improve their recruiting and retention program. And this is distinct from the other student loan specialist on the West Coast. Uh, the Stanford Business School originated company, which is uh, very much uh, these days focused all over the shop. It's not just student loans. It's, it's personal unsecured loans. It's mortgages and so on. Yeah, I think you have two very different strategies. I think there's a strategy of go, go broad quickly across multiple asset classes. And then there's a strategy of remaining maniacally focused on on your bread and butter and over time kind of earning the right to, to go and expand. Uh, we... F- are in the latter category. That is a conscious decision that we have made strategically. You know, our goal is to to build a great company that lasts for a very long time. And, you know, maniacal focus is something that for us, certainly in our first five years of existence is really important. So Mm -hmm. it hasn't prevented us from expanding our product set within education finance, but it has kept us squarely within education finance to really build a powerful platform there and then earn the right to expand across asset classes. Uh, And when does that right? become yours? I think it's, you know, on either side of, of, of five to six years. That's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is on the other side of a, of a down cycle. So we know the economy uh, goes up and down. Uh, we know that we haven't had much of a down cycle really since the financial crisis, but we know it's coming at some point. Our goal um, and what we talk about internally is to build a platform now on this side of a downturn that ensures that on the other side of the downturn, we can look back and say, you know, common bond performed better through that downturn than any other platform. The reason we think that is because while there's been a significant amount of capital that's come into online lending over the last several years, both equity and debt, we think there's multiples of that uh, on the other side of a credit cycle. When we're able to prove and show our performance 
frankly, was was the best among kind of all the players. Mm-hmm. And that's when I talk about build a great company that lasts a long time. I'm thinking kind of in those kind of five to 10 year increments. Reading between the lines, and it sounds as though you're not desperate to, to go public like uh, the other student loan specialist on the, on the West Coast. Yeah, I, I don't think we're, we're going to IPO in the next year or two. Is it a possibility for us? Absolutely. We have a couple different options, right? Theoretically speaking, we can IPO, go public. We could get acquired or we stay private. Truth be told, I focus a lot on build a great company, ensure the fundamentals are strong so that it lasts a long time, and the rest will kind of fall into place from there. And what about the the, the acquisition option? Have you had serious discussions with uh, you know big banks, household names? I'd say it this way. I think a lot of traditional financial companies right now are seriously trying to figure out how best to compete in the market, period. And in that conversation, the question of do we build buy or partner with fintechs is one that every bank has asked. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are now starting to answer. So I think what we're going to see in in 2018 is perhaps more activity between traditional financial shops and fintech players than we have in in the previous years. One, the, the fintech players you know, we're becoming more mature, we're becoming stronger, we're, be- we're becoming bigger, we're becoming proven, and we're developing a really strong consumer following. That's really attractive to traditional banks. On the other side, traditional banks have really low cost of capital and access to millions of customers through their pre-existing channels. That's really attractive too. Mm-hmm. So what you have is a situation where fintechs and traditional financial companies quite possibly have what the other doesn't. And if they were to come together in some capacity, could provide a better overarching experience for the end consumer. I think the added layer in all this and what could make 2018 the year that we see more of this than any previous year is the fact that what I like to call big tech, I think will make big moves in finance in 2018. I think we started to hear and see and sense rumblings of this in, in the back half of 2017. It's a nice narrative. What rumblings have you been picking up in, in the second half of last year? Well, you know, you see things like Amazon putting out a press release in the back half of 2017 to call out that they had done $3 billion in small business loans, right. right? That signals to me that Amazon is one example of a big tech company. It might be thinking about finance, in this case, lending, as not just a feature to help drive, you know, the, the purchase of, of goods on their retail platform, but perhaps want to think about it as a core business. And so the question then becomes, well, if that's what it looks like at Amazon, what does it look like at Apple or Facebook or Google? Well, at Facebook and Google, uh, they're sitting on a ton of data. Data and finance work really well together. uh, And if you have technology to learn quickly from it and then apply it, that could be very attractive to financial companies, mm-hmm. whether they want to become a financial company themselves or whether they want to monetize it with with financial companies. And then you have Apple, who sits on an incredible amount of cash, call it $250 billion. That's a significant amount of capital. You could do a, the, the lending power of $250 billion of equity, of cash, is multiple trillions, right? To put that in perspective, I mean, that's what the biggest banks in the world Yeah, JP Morgan Chase, $217 trillion. <laughs> yeah. David Klein, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin here in London, also Simon Mundy in Mumbai, and Ben McClanahan and his guest David Klein in the US. Thank you also for listening. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.